Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson. And I'm William Pauheida. Uh, today is our summertime show, and what we're going to be doing uh, today is talking about uh, sort of mid-career artists. We have uh, Tali Hankis in the studio, who's, who's going to join us and talk about her career as um, a media artist, uh, as part of the collective Lovid. And of course, both of us, me and William, we have a, a kind of a lot of experience being mid-career ourselves at this point. <laughs> It'll be worth kind of like talking a little bit about what that actually means, aside from being a certain age. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Middle-aged. And I, I think this is also an extension of our interest in the kind of the plight of the mid-market that seems to also being sort of really impacted right now and squeezed uh, on sort of either side. Right. Um, so one of the reasons um, I wanted to have you here, Tali, is because um, you came to my office recently and uh, we had, I just thought, a really fascinating conversation about just how difficult it is to... Um, be a quote unquote mid career, particularly for media artists. So that is sort of like the nut of what I really wanted to dig into with you. I just feel like you have a lot of experience with that because you've really um, navigated the side of the art world that I feel doesn't get enough attention, which is that the the artists who are getting a lot of grants and and um, support from museums and that's primarily where their you know their income comes from and then maybe they sell a few things but mm-hmm. it's it's sort of more different revenue streams than just a sort of traditional gallery representation yeah, and I think um, it would be great if you could also explain to us a little bit more about uh, what Lovid is and your sure. collaborative work and then maybe we can get into why grants have been so important to your practice. Yeah, exactly. I, I have to say that, you know, when we, when I read with Patty a couple of weeks ago, it was the same, you know, I had the same uh, feeling it kind of started something and um, maybe other thoughts that I've had kind of more formalized because of that. And part of it is like this idea of like mid-career and um, how we do have this kind of given assumption. I think it's a, possibly a very New York American idea that there's always this upwards tra- trajectory, right? We talk, you guys talk a lot about and like social mobility and income and value of your work, and we have this idea that we're always supposed to g- growth is more important than system sustainability. And I think that's just kind of uh, I able to articulate myself that to myself more since we we talked. So I think well, that's I, a big part of it I, as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I sometimes wonder whether it's even a, an either or situation. I think we associate growth as sustainability, right? Like without growth, somehow sustainability isn't is impossible yeah, or something. I guess, or sure, I do think like that idea that if we say that growth is sustainability, we're in trouble. Yeah, you oh, know, yeah. in no, so absolutely. many different and ways. In so many different ways. I think we have this myth that a young artist comes to the scene. You know, again, this is the myth. You know, they're kind of a nobody. Uh, we can talk about that. How often that happens? There is this expectation that. You know, if you work hard, you continue, you're always going to be developing in your career, in your income, in your social status. And I think that's very, and so that's very tied into this kind of issue of, as a a mid-career artist, if you compare it to any other profession, 
I don't think anyone in any profession just assumes they're going to be CEO always. Yeah, right? if you it's if you're funny, if you're a, yeah. a dentist, yes. you know, you open <laughs> the practice, yeah. and you know, you're not necessarily trying to create like a chain for the world, but maintain a stable practice exactly, with, exactly. with you know relatively small roster of you know patients. But you know, it's like I hear you. That is just not even a useful model for a lot of artists. You know, I've certainly felt that pressure. Yeah. So like really way, way back, I, I grew up in Israel and I went to school in Paris. So I, and then I moved to New York and I, I always knew I wanted to be in New York, but then it was just kind of set that I was going to stay. I came back just, I went back to Paris just to finish school and, and moved to New York. So I, ne- and I never studied in the U.S. And in France, I have a degree, it's like a DN, DNAP, which is kind of the highest degree of art you could have gone at the time. But the equivalent is like a, a BA in the U.S. because it's a studio practice. It's a very different system. So I never went through like the, the like traditional MFA kind of route. And Kyle is like doesn't have, is not educated in the arts at all. He's a scientist and a doctor. So it's a whole other, and like engineering, a whole other kind of background. And so when we met and got together and started working together, we were really working in like almost like, I mean, that was what I was interested in. It was by design like the underground kind of noise scene in like early 2000, 2001. Where was right. that? Uh, that was you... in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. Williamsburg, like way before, like 10 years into Williamsburg. So like what kind of venues were you um, playing at? So we met at Rubelad, which still kind oh, of I operates, but the old Rubelad, <laughs> which was in like North 6, I want to say. I mean, it was all on South 6, whatever it was. Yeah, it was, it was on past the, the train, by the bridge, mm-hmm. right, far away. And it was, um, you know, a, a kind of basement studio spaces, kind of co-op where they had, you know, artist studios. And they just started then doing some shows, like exhibitions, uh, et cetera. And so I met some people in Williamsburg when I moved. There's a, an organization that we still work with, Wave Farm. At the time, they were called Free 103.9. And they were a pirate radio sh- station. And so they would like do shows in like a loft space. And there was a benefit for them, the first big benefit. So it was this huge, like, thousand, I remember just thousands of people come to that space and so Kyle and I met there both doing like performing and doing things so there was like the lot like the, the free 103.9 radio station that had live shows and broadcasting on Pirate Radio and then there was Rubelad uh, and then you know I did some like early on in collaboration we would not the kitchen like there was Knitting Factory and I'm now blanking on the name but you know where it was like a Norfolk like on Lower East Side there was the bunker or something it was like mm-hmm. a, a ba- there was a um, like a oh I'm forgetting what it's called, but whatever. There was a music venue on the top floor and kind of a bar on the bottom floor, and they would do um, more experimental, more like kind of VJ, DJ stuff downstairs. Uh, there was definitely like the knitting factory also. So w- what did your, like an yeah. early Lovid performance yeah. look like? Because I think I'm even more yeah. familiar with the video and actually, Yeah, so, so, and then we did have a show at um, in 2000 and three at South First Gallery, mm-hmm. which is still operating. And uh, and that was an... Ex- so we had, like, hardware equipment that we would collect from thrift stores, and we would patch them in a way that made uh, live, like, noisy audio and video. And even at the time, we already had, like, some drawings, and we did these videoware. There was uh, a set of seven wearable monitors that we each 
put in our body. And now it's funny because that was 2003 and it was before there were iPhones or any portable video. So we would collect monitors from, uh, that were for, for cars yeah. and like break those apart. <laughs> oh, wow. I still like, have one of yeah. those that I used to share like animation exactly. on. Exactly. <laughs> we would have to find them and, and kind of hack them, solder them separately. And they were mounted in these protective sportswear. And then we would run hundreds of cables because there was no really um, wireless options at the time that was easy and like play live video through that that we were processing with um, uh, the analog instruments. So it was all really coming from the tradition of like noise, uh, kind of hacking culture, uh, modification of electronics. And there was a good, you know, there was a great scene across the country of people doing that. So we also travel a lot. And um, I had just graduated from Hunter you know, mm-hmm. shortly before that period. So I'm really, you know, sort of like just coming into Williamsburg myself, paying attention finally. But who are some of the other artists in your kind of peer group in that time? I think it's just yeah. a fascinating question. And again, this is just so specific because we were really operating within the music world originally, but also video. I was like, I, I basically came off the boat and went to like EAI and like looked a lot of like videos that were made in New York in Electronic the Arts Intermix. Electronic Arts yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was just, you know, I, video was a big part of what I wanted to do. Um, so I would say that there were like these collect. So, so the things that I feel like were going on in New York at the time were these kind of DIY parties. Uh, there was this group called Wonderlust. There was Complacent. There were these um, Black Cat, I want to say. A bunch of these collectives where they would do... It was like kind of new generation raves maybe. There were some installations. There were um, different performances. And then uh, when we would travel, there were a lot of just fabulous art-run spaces. Uh, you know, a lot of them in Providence, obviously. Uh, but really across the country where there were really interesting um, other artists that were doing things and they were kind of coming in and out. So, you know, yeah, there's, I, I can almost say it's mostly from the music world that I can like remember. Oh, no, sorry. Okay. And then the other thing is um, like the old, old Deitch project. So that's also that same time. Like the Worcester Street one, they would just do, be these like big shows. We would perform. We performed there several times. Uh, they had, you know, we organized a, an, an event there one time in the early 2000s also. It just felt like there was a lot of intersection of music specifically and artists. So, you know, like um, a Sue Master Raven Focus yeah, and like yeah, D exactly. Raindrop. And, uh, uh, you know, and then we had like, you know, it was Corey Angel, Archangel, uh, you know, Jim Drain. And um, there was another, it was all a lot of collectives. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Corey Archangel Cor- and Beige. Corey, Corey Archangel <laughs> and Beige, exactly. We're doing Paper all Red, I think. Paper, Paper Red, Red. Yeah. absolutely. All these guys. And, um, you know, Force Fields. They were from Providence mm-hmm. and they were very much. And then there was this gal, you know, the, the Daniel Reich Gallery. Do you mm-hmm. remember that? Space? Yeah. So he had yeah. his, in his apartment this little apartment in Chelsea. And so everything, yeah, I think that was sort of, and he was showing like force field. And so that, that was kind of the scene for me. It was, I don't know that it was the scene. Like I'm sure there was, oh, it was definitely, it was was a big scene. And that was my feeling of the scene. It was all kind of very music and art and yeah, kind of, and and a lot of like the approach to electronics across the board was like breaking, breaking the electronics. I feel like, I feel like I, I, came into your work or I was introduced to it through Corey Archangel, mm-hmm. I think. There was like a sort of Harvest Works clan that would kind of hang out together, Ray Sweeten, Corey Archangel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I can't remember who else, but I know Christian Markley was sort of connected mm-hmm. to to them because he was doing a, a like a noise album with them. Yes. And and then, of course, there was a bunch of I-Beam people as well. So Jonah Peretti was kind of in that scene. And I, I think maybe the first time I saw you guys might have been at I-Beam. But Deitch Project's as you mentioned, was a huge hub. It was a huge hub for that. And, and what was the space he opened in Williamsburg briefly? I forget there the name was, of the yes, duo. So there was this K48 also magazine, mm-hmm. which was Bantishner of uh, Invisible Exports yeah. and uh, Scott Hug. Who's, and then both of them ran this magazine called K48 and they would do several editions. It was like this beautiful publication with a lot of artists. They would just invite lots of people and then they would often have shows around that. So I was in one of the K48 shows and that, that Williamsburg space, it was just huge space and it was a Fisher Spooner. Yeah, that Fisher Spooner. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. that's almost like for me the peak yeah. of the, the yeah. time period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it sort of formalized. Yeah. It had some commercial yeah. support with Deitch behind it. Exactly. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just think it's it's worth saying that like Williamsburg at that time, pre-2008, you know, that run up the early aughts, there was so much room for experimentation, whether it was in the yeah. spaces that were available where you could have like a giant roublad or Deitch could have a very cheap space mm-hmm. for Fisher Spooner. But much like the rest of the gallery scene, it kind of matured and uh, a lot of like... I saw that first assume vivid astro focus show at Bellwether yeah. and within a few years she's in Chelsea and a few years yeah. after that she's closed. Mm-hmm. And I think there's yeah. a, a story there that I think we can talk about a bit more is that these galleries did want to grow and they wanted to stop being emerging and become established. But a lot of them emerged into a place where they, there wasn't the, the place for them. Yeah. A lot of them are closed and gone and it's really Kind of the sad yeah. legacy of Williamsburg is that so many of the spaces that did open and created space for experimentation mm-hmm. didn't quite make it as far. Yeah, yeah. I think a good example of that too is Monkey Town, right? Mm-hmm. Monkey like Town was a, was a big Monkey part Town, of that too. and yeah. this, I mean, you know, like Fisher Spooner, like this was not, you know, an outfit that didn't get a lot of press. Like Monkey Town was in the New York Times every other week, mm-hmm. you know, and they still closed. And then there was, I mean, there were other spaces too that some of them still operate, you know, in a different format. I, I want to make like a quick analogy to like a different era. So I lived in, in Paris in the 90s and um, at 98, for some reason, there was this burst of artist-run spaces and the whole time I was there there was none France was very super institutionalized so there were only like institutional museums and galleries and suddenly all the students were like fuck that and everyone in my school was like opening a project space and there was the same kind of convergence of electronic music and um, art and artists just opening these interesting project spaces and it was this most exciting year and at the end of that year the um uh, the uh, Palais de Tokyo, the Museum of Art, curated a show of all these artists-run spaces. And it was the most, to my eye, depressing thing that killed the scene completely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and I was like, yeah. this was such a way of looking at it from a very institutional, like a, a, a government-sponsored thing. It was for all the good intentions, right? Bringing it into the museum, legitimize all these venues, but it really is was completely against the spirit of freedom and kind of yeah, and I would say the space to yeah, it just it's, did it's not a, work at a museum at all. It's a parallel kind of narrative to what happened to Williamsburg, which was yeah. it wasn't the institutions that killed Williamsburg. It was trying to kind of grow and expand and become commercial spaces in Chelsea and the Lower East Side that really killed the spirit. I think of 
experimentation and that allowed for that kind of collaboration where you know and it's it's not lost on me that south forth south first is still open because mm-hmm. they're still in Williamsburg, yes, right? Yes, still in Williamsburg. Yeah. And they're still, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Despite everything yeah, else. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing that someone like, like Michael Pollock or uh, Invisible Exports are doing is I think there's like gallerists who are really interested in that place in history where artists have developed something very authentic. So they often have to go back and present work of sort of, you know, less known artists that are you know, from like 50, a very long time ago and kind of recontextualize that and bring them into, um, you know, the kind of 2018 gallery world. And I think that's, you know, I think that's how, how something that they're doing kind of in a very interesting way. Uh, I mean, it's so hard to hold anyone responsible. I mean, kind of something that I don't think I was aware of at all at the time as a young person and a young mother also to say um, is that this was um, right after September 11th. And to some extent, I think this was a reaction to, you know, there was the um, Giuliani uh, mm-hmm. era. All of that was happening at the same time. Yeah, and I, I yeah. also think, I mean, it's when I moved to New York in the late 90s, we were kind of coming out of an intense period around the AIDS mm-hmm. crisis, really, you know, like kind of culture wars yeah. that we're back into now. It did seem like the early 2000s were both a reaction to the Bush administration, 9-11, the war on terror, but also a kind of... It, an opening up of art again, where there was a kind of like joyous celebration mm-hmm. to the whole thing, which always struck me as a bit weird. Like I thought it'd be a bit more political having the Iraq war unfolding around that same time. But I could see that, you know, artists reacted very differently in some ways to that. We're like, fuck the system. We're going to go <laughs> yeah, do our own yeah, thing. Yeah. My, my sort of kind of personal view of it. And again, this is all in retrospect is that specifically working with technology and the technology that I was, that we were using, kind of hacking and building our own systems and other musicians and artists that were doing that, is that the generation before us who were innovators in technology, a lot of them subscribed to this idea of a utopian world with technology. You know, they really wanted to create some kind of a master instrument or, you know, beautiful virtual spaces where we kind of have seen it glitch in we've seen the towers fall we've seen the 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 airplanes crash and that decay of the technological systems is what i think a part of that awareness or um subconscious of of that was what i think um also helped uh kind of ignite that collective energy Mm -hmm. huh and especially you can see it in like the music the kind of noise um you know glitchy the interest in glitch and, and uh, repurposed analog, like instruments. You know, it's funny. So I I think a while ago, well, it was right around the time that when mm-hmm. the uh, towers fell that I, I was speaking to my uncle and he had said that, you know, one of the things that was so crazy about the towers falling is that the whole thing just like felt like a completely surreal experience because because the towers were kind of a result of cumulative human knowledge mm-hmm. you couldn't no one person could understand how to build the entire thing it took like architects and like engineers and all this stuff when it fell down there's no way to really understand what its absence meant and so you had people sort of walking around in shock and i i guess like after i had heard that i the diy scene kind of took on a a different feel to me because here was this thing that like people could understand and wrap their heads around. It was technology that was somehow manageable, mm-hmm. but I 
do also want to put out that put out there, and this is, I think, particularly true in your case, like the types of it's not the type of technology exactly but like your installations look crazy like (laughs) they have so many wires coming out of them i remember Mm. there's like one with all these like jars or something like on the table it's like i think it's one of the sort of more well-known shots but like i was just like anytime i saw that work i was like who is the crazy person who has the brain that can put this all together and like manage all these wires and like figure <laughs> it all out? And then talking to both you and Kyle mm-hmm. is just fascinating mm-hmm. because you, I, it's hard to imagine people that think so differently and like come together so well. <laughs> right, it's that, that is true that, it, that, that I'm not the brain that puts them together. But I will say that I think the biggest um, gesture was to open it up because those instruments have existed for 40 years, we just expose them. And I think that's a part of the, what I'm talking Taking about. Them apart, Taking them apart, literally hacking and, and them, making, making them do different things. And not them and not putting them in, you mm-hmm. know, black boxes, but it's all about, we call it all wireful. I mean, we, I still use that term because it's all about exposing the things that are already there. You're just, everyone's going through a lot of efforts. To, I know. And, and on the commercial side of like pop music, just the horrible spread of like auto-tuning, right, you know, yeah. and just becoming this homogenizing feature yeah, that I mean, then disappears and people yeah. forget that there's all this tech, technology between like right. the voice or the music that they're hearing. But I would say, you know, even in a more interesting way that I don't know if I have um, enough in, like personal knowledge about it, but I would be interested in drawing a parallel to what was going on for us in our work in media to what was happening in sculpture and painting and at what point uh, visual artists expose their process mm. and leave, you know, kind of rough edges and start mm. assembling right. again if it's around like the same time, yeah. you know. I mean, in terms of drawing in Williamsburg, mm-hmm. one of the things that I learned when I came out of it was that you could make drawings about other systems and other things. It didn't have to just purely be about itself. But you had like Mark Lombardi making drawings that were exposing financial mm-hmm. systems. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that spirit of experimentation was cross-disciplinary. It wasn't just like, you know, in music. The Before I forget it, the other thing that I wanted to bring up, and we can talk about it with grants, is that mm-hmm. I think in the early 2000s or the mid-aughts, it would seem logical that if you're making dematerialized, experience-based work that's not necessarily about selling drawings or commercial stuff, that grants would be really important. But now, over the last five or six years or even longer, it seems like if you're using technology, you should be monetizing it and finding, like, there seems to be a lot of money kind of flowing into, like, that thing that, it, and that you're expected to maybe uh, figure out a way to pay for it or crowdsource it or something. So, okay, so a couple, actually, <laughs> I think the answer has to start a little earlier. So, um, first of all, that IBM residency we did in 2005, we would have studio visits, and we've always done prints and other physical things alongside always prints that are based on the video and we've had some gallery come to we had like a wall of prints and instruments and the gallery would say there's nothing for me to sell here and I think that's another interesting that was going thing I was going for so for example like digital prints then were not considered fine art as they are now that's like another kind of additional thing also in like where media art I don't think I I don't think I even knew that. Like, that hearing that right now seems yeah. mind-blowing to me. Would that to, that was... I would have to explain, and no one knew how to have to write it. If you had to, like, write that it's a digital print, like, what would you write? The kind of paper you write? You know, it was this, like, very complicated way. And actually, for the show we had at South First, we had to... I printed them on, footer, on 
like photo, like photographic prints, so it would be like easier. So they were still as photos. These mm-hmm. But um, so that's like a <laughs> just like yeah. a funny. Just things change so quickly, and you know, and like ten in ten, I guess ten years on one. But um, on like the grant subject. So when when we started working together as Lovid, the idea was the relationship with like commercial galleries was just never really something that we had thought about. And so the trajectory had seemed to be, you know, doing shows, doing, uh, getting grants, working kind of in institutions. And, and we were also doing like a lot of film festivals and things like that at the time. Mm-hmm. But there was a problem of how do you, when you ha- show a short video in a film festival, you usually don't get paid. And also your work will be in like a really long program that's very hard to, um, it would hard to be recognized often. So that was kind of an interesting thing to try as well. And then the grants really helped to make more ambitious projects. You've mentioned I-Beam. What were some of the really Mm -hmm. important granting institutions or where were the sources of funding yeah, at that so time. so um, so we did. So I would say, like in that kind of mid two thousands, it was IBEAM. We did a lot of work with Experimental TV Center. They've done give us residencies. They um, sponsor us for grants. So this is just like where it gets really nerdy. But well, you know, the since the NEA thing in the eighties, where artists can no longer get grants, federal grants, I think mm-hmm. directly, you have right. to be um, under fiscal sponsorship of someone else, an organization. And there are several uh, non-for-profits in New York State that have re-grants mm-hmm. from like NISCO, other things. So ETC was a big re-grantor and they've supported us for a long period through small but decent uh, grants, like several of them. And those were grants that you could like reapply to, which is kind of a key thing where there's not a lot of grants that you can reapply to. Some grants you can only get once, maybe twice. And not to get um, specific, mm-hmm. but... Yeah. Um, is there a general like figure um, about like how maybe how much annually you might have been getting for grants well, to help? Well, so I mean, I would usually combine a grant, right? So mm-hmm. maybe you would get like like a budget for a project would be between ten to twenty thousand, and you could get like a big chunk from one organization, and then maybe two thousands here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would say the ETC would probably be between two thousand and four thousand for like a year, a grant mm-hmm. cycle, and again, you always, I mean grant writing is a whole thing on its own where you have to kind of base how much how much of it is uh, your fee and how much of it goes to whatever things that you need uh, a funny thing that happened to me recently when I switched to less relying on grants and more doing other shows or doing studio work is I've I've for like over 10 years working with grants I've always worked with a budget so I have I know how much income I have and I best base my time and my project on the budget I have so if I get less money the project is going to scale down where like I think arts working in the studio you sort of make that initial investment <laughs> and like your your materials or whatever you need and then you you kind of take it from there which is a it's a really um sort of subtle but really different way of working I think that almost like the grand media artists are not aware of and the painters <laughs> they don't know that the other person's working so that's kind of a, a, a I think it does affect the way you work in the long run it affects your rhythm and it affects the way you approach your work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a, a museum show I did at the Aldrich, that one had a very specific budget. Decisions were being made based on, like, where to allocate funds. So whether something would be framed or not. Like, I didn't even know if I was going to be making framed work at that point. But there just had to be decisions that, that ultimately did have some influence on, like, what ended up in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, not the other way around where I made everything and then just, you know 
put it in the museum, they tailored the budget to fit that, yeah. you know. Yeah. And then we've gone, so then this is kind of the, the couple of things. We've gone um, NISCO, regular, like, you know, every we've gone to at least two or three times already, and that's a pretty good chunk, and it's specifically for media work. So, you know, there's like a history of why there's so many media arts organizations in New York State, including from like the 60s, which there was, I believe, a Guggenheim... Or or Rockefeller, some someone with a lot of money who who in their um, will left specifically a big endowment for media arts in New York State, which is why since the '60s there has been always an upstate kind of there's just always a media art presence, uh, and right. a lot of not for profits like the video freaks, you know, like that's all like they were all getting money, NISCA money through this large endowment, and then you know just like ETC that I mentioned was kind of started based on it. A lot of the upstate school, like Binghamton, was, like, getting um, people to come and, like, work there. I mean, there's, like, and a whole Troy story of media. Too, Troy, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Troy mm-hmm. is a part of it. So there's just, like, a big media art culture in New York. And it used to be, I feel like, it's sort of, a lot of it has moved more upstate. Mm. I mean, it's always been upstate, but there's still a lot of, a lot of those are around. Um, and... Other grants, so we, so we worked a lot with Harvest Works through their granting. We actually we're doing residency right now with them, but also as fiscal sponsorship. So we've gotten Greenwall Foundation. Those those were pretty decently sized grants. I think it was like a three, you could apply for three years or something like that. I, I might be forgetting the details. I mean, there's just like a long list. And then more recently, we've gone like a Rochelberg Foundation grant for, through um, Real Artways in Connecticut. And that was a, re- a really like a a large, the largest grant we've ever got for like a three-year project. And so and, and when you said, that, when you yeah. said that, um, that your, you know, your project budget might be like 22,000, was that mm-hmm. like early on or was that later on in your... So that was, I think, and I don't have my notes, but I would say that in 2005, we probably, for that IBM residency, we probably worked on a project on that scale, yeah. Okay, and so like by the time you get to 2015, have you doubled it? Or? Well, not really. That's yeah, the thing. This that's is, the, okay, this the is curious the question. Is, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I, that was my question: yeah. is is how has the the kind of granting landscape right. changed for you? And 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 I mean, we've already kind of talked a little bit about it. Like you're shifting into the studio a little bit more. But... I'm combining it. I'm okay. crisscrossing. I'm doing mm-hmm. it all. <laughs> 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 well, so ex- with the exception of the Rochester grant, which was really significant, it was uh, because we talk here about everything. It was a hundred, hundred fifty thousand for a three year project, which was collaborative, very involved, but like the biggest budget I've had to manage for, for um, a grant. So in those, in those, let's say the sum of like, so and that might be like every couple of years, like a large grant, but there's also in it like small commissions mm-hmm. adding, you know, rhizome, like 2000, you know, like various things right. that you kind of collect into it. So some of those things, as I said, you can only get once. Some of those things you can apply, cannot apply. You don't get it the first time. In three years, suddenly you're too established for them because you've already done all these other things. So now you can't get it because you're no longer emerging. So the fun thing, I think that's so my yeah. It's, it's a, that's where it's this. I don't want to be. I don't want to bitch so much because I'm so grateful for everybody. But I think that's the idea. There's not for, for an individual artist to grow their income only relying on grants. You know, I've never gotten like the Guggenheim or Crab Capital. Those maybe are more like I don't know if they're even more money, but maybe you can. Like, well, creative term. creative capital is fifty thousand yeah. dollars. So it's a, it's 
And I think it's over two years. Yeah. And so it's not more money than, say, the Rushenberg. Yeah, but, but they, and they also ask you, like, the first part of that application process is how much do you need to pay yourself mm-hmm. to yeah. do this project well, first. Yes. Right. And that's Which a lot of grants don't. A lot of grants really want you to do that. I've also gotten a lot of support from um, organization called Graham Foundation in Chicago for like this is kind of like an, a relationship that we've had with them. And so there's actually a lot of those, a lot of the grants, they want you to specify why is this a pivotal moment in your career, which is kind of goes back to this whole idea of this trajectory that you're expected to be on and maybe in some way their responsibility to their shareholders or whoever to show that you are and it's an investment in the artist so you're supporting them like an entrepreneur like an investor and you will get some kind of you know like the for sometimes just creative um rewards or whatever it is so there's a lot of like framing your proposal it doesn't it's not just um oh i'm doing this project sustained which actually niska is pretty much like that it works like you have a project you can apply for them the european model from what i understand is a lot more like that you kind of sustain an artist career a lot of the grants in the u.s is really kind of to show oh i'm in this pivotal moment i'm taking a bigger chance i'm experiencing something new and i mean i can imagine that is, is true and then at the same time there's probably um like you know agnes gunn started her mm-hmm. art for like yeah. social justice yeah. fund yeah. and it's specifically for artists whose work is addressing like prison population right. and pushing for a kind of social change so I, I know that there's also another expectation potentially for a lot of work that has to address social problems that's out in the community and is more than just like what's you know our investment in this artist's career or pivotal moment yeah I mean there's something about both those scenarios that seems so kind of American to me mm-hmm. like Absolutely. you know one both like let's make sure that like our money makes a splash with this artist you know and <laughs> yeah. then also like Hey, we underfund our government so much that now we need art to solve our problems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And and that's that's another big part of it is that I was seeing that there was a shift and some of the grants that I was applying for were, you know, going away and were being replaced by these um, you know, social practice grants, which is, you know, it's great. And at some point I did have to say, Well, I've had a great run and I it's like other people deserve these opportunities. These are things that need to be funded. I'm okay with it. The the issue of the growth in terms of, you know, making, you know, raising more money is that I, we were kind of trying it with the Rauschenberg grant is like, what if Lovid becomes a non-for-profit and then we can raise, kind of act as like, you know, like a dance company would or get our theater, small theater, right? You can kind of raise money for, a produ- you can get more money for production, but we tried it for a couple of years, something similar, similar along similar lines. Like we, LMCC supported a great, a big project, and you know, and through the Rauschenberg. And it turns out, I it really like gets to me after a while because then I end up being a producer and not a maker. And I really, and some artists work really well with it. I just really want to be in the studio. I want to make video. I want to make things by hand. I want to just make art. And um, like, I sure I could produce something big. But it's, you know, I it's um, I, I don't know that I want to just manage other people to do stuff. I want right. to make it myself. So it's still something I'm playing with, but not as much of this, like, let's write a big grant that would fund everything and I can, like, hire tons of people. It's, it's much more collaborative. It's slower and working with these small partnerships to make something maybe more, um, like, in the long run, take, taking more time to do it. 
So what do you think of like Kickstarter or Drip or the kind of crowdsourcing models? Yeah. So I, I have, you know, I've been trying to work with Drip. They invited me to do something on it and um, I'm not very active on it. I have friends in the not-for-profit art community, art community who are executive director who really, really, really resent Kickstarter and blame a lot of it on um, kind of people's less lack of interest in supporting not-for-profits. I, you know, I pity the wonderful people whose job it is to try to figure out how to make money out of media art. Like, really, <laughs> there are so many wonderful people with great intentions that are always trying to figure out how to sell media. And, you know, more parts to them for trying... I just, I just don't, feel, I, you know, that's why I maybe that's how I'm old and old school I am. I think, yeah. Well, when I we had, when we had the Kevin McCoy on yeah, the show, yeah. we talked about that tension between the utopian ideas of like early exactly. tech and new media artists, you know, culture wants to be free. And now we're dealing with the Kickstarters and the drips that are like, how do we put up a paywall to capture some money? Because if we can't sell these things like art objects for yeah. thousands of dollars, how can we get subscribers or, you know, a lot of people to contribute? a little bit of money but when you're making challenging new media work that people don't necessarily recognize um, because they're so used to entertainment how do you capture you know audiences and I, just as like an aside I, I I know of a photographer who sells in commercial galleries has many thousands of followers on Instagram mm -hmm. but then on drip has like 29 people or no, something yeah. paying <laughs> yeah. for it and yeah, it's yeah. so that model has a long way to go and, and I've had a lot of conversations with them about it mm -hmm. and some of the things I think are a problem is um Especially if you're a New York media artist, you all know the same people. Mm -hmm. Like it's like you know, everybody's kind of <laughs> like the yeah. like their same friends on Facebook to like <laughs> give them five dollars. I don't know. I mean, at the same time, but again, I think for me, it's like physical communities, doing things in real spaces, experimenting together, having shows where you pay five dollars to get in. I, I don't know. There's just different ways. I'm also, and that is totally because I think it like where you come from artistically is maybe how you see the world or the market I even though I went to like fine art school I do all sorts of things I I do see myself as coming into coming of age in New York coming from the music world and the video world where distribution is more important than the rarity of the object mm -hmm. so the you know that's just that's right. kind of always going to be the conflict where in music the more distributed your work is the greater value it is yeah. the art is the other way around I can never figure out why the fuck that is like is that like, <laughs> a big deal and some of the most wonderful galleries I talk to they just it's like they just can't it, they can't make the switch and they're very set it's a very we're still in a very conservative overall if, yeah if you want to charge yeah. hundreds of thousands of dollars for something there's a very limited audience of people right. who are have the money and then interested in that so it's in the gallery's interest of keeping a lot of keeping those prices very high and exclusive yeah. and there's still a lot of tension Absolutely. like people are arguing yeah. on twitter right now about <laughs> um the fact that bringing some opacity or bringing more transparency to the market can be a good thing for collectors but it still doesn't address the really fundamental differences in distribution models right. of like the more hit, you know, uh, people that download your song or pay for it, you know, it's, it's great for it to be popular right. and in art. And, you know, sometimes I would not, sometimes I would make, you know, $2,000 of a gig, a performance, you know, and th that's the way kind of a musician work, right? Mm -hmm. So where you maybe make a lot of small things and then you get 
one night you make, you know, like some that kind of money because you've been kind of raising your profile mm-hmm. and if it just you know I also do a lot of work in like academic institutions so like artist talks and things like that also kind of it all kind of builds up to it mm-hmm. but um, no I I, I, I understand why the galleries make the decisions they make but I can't and I think as we talked about like I can't help I think that there's a wider potential audience for art and um, you know yeah, it's it, it, there's a there's a challenge where even as a maker, like how to make a work of art accessible to a broader audience, and the first impulse is to bring the price down because if you want more people mm-hmm. to be able to have access mm-hmm. to it, it can't be obscenely expensive. But there then gets to be a point where like ways of making things in an artist studio don't scale up the same way. You can't you know unless you're doing lots of digital prints yeah. or. And those things can be great, but then all the, the the reasoning behind why you would charge so much for something that maybe costs three bucks to print out suddenly starts to get uh, it's a little suspect or <laughs> I mean, doesn't doesn't apply anymore. I think one question that I have that's sort of coming up from this that is, you know, if we're talking about like well, why isn't there a larger audience for art? Like, is how tied is that to the market versus individual interest like because I remember a long time ago I had this conversation with Jen Beckman at 20 by 200 and this was like sort of peak 20 by 200 times and so she she was selling a lot of prints Mm -hmm. and you know she was just like you know people understand things better if they can buy them Hmm. and that really kind of resonated with me although it somehow seemed I don't know how far you can really take that though because like I don't know that I don't know that I want to connect with everything every interest I have through like a purchase point like a lot of times like it seems like the other thing that we really tend to value now is the experience you know and that like experience Mm -hmm. has this something that it can give us something beyond a, a purchase price which it is I think it's important particularly now because like I just especially for the younger generations like there is nobody I talk to who's like full of hope like part of the part of the like I'm teaching this uh, this course that it's a new media course at NYU and like I've really kind of focused on the early new media days in part because like there's still optimism and these kids don't know what that's like that's kind of what I'm feeling that, you know, that the idea that now a young artist coming to the city, they have such a clear idea of what they need to do, all the steps that they have to do to survive. You know, there's just this yeah. one way. It's a, like, win or lose. They don't have these, like, great places. They don't have all these other pl- opportunities to decide which trajectory they choose. I feel yeah, like places to experiment. Only, yes, like- I don't feel like they have that. Um, I mean, I talk to young people like that too, and I, and I, I do I do find that um... that sort of question of like understanding the world through the lens of a mm-hmm. price point. It's very complicated, but it's so interesting. Like the Met when they decided that they are going to you know charge admission for people outside of New York. Mm-hmm. Part of that logic was that people they they'll have some skin in the game. They'll take it more seriously, you know, right. and they're paying for something. But then the idea of going to the museum is seeing art that you don't own, that you don't have to mm-hmm. own, that's mm-hmm. not for sale, that is just about the experience of looking at work. 
and that idea of experience-based work has gotten, it's changed quite a bit. Now the experience-based work is something more like Meow Wolf, which mm-hmm. I feel like, are you familiar with that? The, the, the New Mexico um, in Santa Fe? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know how you feel about that, but it oh, seems like a well, third, third generation yeah, version okay. of Rubelod, yeah. though, designed uh, yeah, yeah, not yeah. for adults, photos, but for kids. But, yeah. you oh, know? okay. They have an adult audience, right. but it's become like a formalized uh-huh. kind of model. Oh, okay. It's corporate, you know, oh. they Oh, really? pay the artists now yeah. to kind of work yeah. and it's there was that kind of experiential mm-hmm. based artwork where it's like go take a selfie and have buy a oh, ticket right there's the whole selfie thing right and i just it, it, it keeps coming back to a tension between ownership and owning something versus just going to look at free culture or now shifting into like a subscription model like rent your culture, yeah. you know, right. like well, pay for a small part of it. You know, part of these things, like I, I don't mind in the sense that, Hey, we all need to make money. And also like, there are a lot more things to buy that like we actually need to have like our cell phones or I don't know how many people actually have TVs or computers, like these sorts of things. And we then say like in the 1950s, you maybe had to do like, there's just the cost of living mm-hmm. is a lot more for a number of reasons that don't just include your rent being higher. So sort of figuring out how to make that happen is not, how to pay your bills is not necessarily like this terrible thing. I think the, what is annoying though is that it just seems like there's also a lot more money floating around. So this like it really, we all shouldn't have to struggle so, so much. But I feel like we've gotten off track, or I've gotten off track a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> I, I kind of wanted to get back more to just like, well, to the, the question of why is it that uh, we have all these like different means of distributing our artwork, but our audience for it seems, I'm not sure if it's just as narrow, like somehow it seems a little bit yeah. larger, but like... More siloed. Yes, I, I, well, I don't, I, okay. I recently talked to a um, mom, friend, neighbor, like academic, and I talked to her a little bit of what I do, and she was like, that's so interesting. I never go see shows. I don't know anything about art. And it hit me that, you know, she reads the New York Times every day. And I asked her, did you hear about the Dana Schutz controversy? And she's like, oh, yeah, that was so fascinating. So that was the one thing that kind of infiltrated her bubble. But I think art is always presented as a separate thing. Mm-hmm. So rarely is it included in in America in the general kind of media diet of people. But that's uh, yeah, I, I I have to sort of believe at this point that that's part of the structure and design no, of it. Yeah. If you're trying to maintain exclusivity for a very limited clientele, the more democratic it becomes, the less valuable it becomes. Right for a very limited audience. And I think they're happy to keep it that way. They're also not as necessarily generous in terms of how much they're willing to fund. And I think they just, but a lot of times people just don't think about it yeah. because it's been like this for so long. Yeah. And, you know, because I, I, I lived in, in France in the 90s, there was, you know, the TV show, what was it called? Um, Apostrophe or something, you know? That. So it was like a nighttime TV show whenever you would have whatever comedy in the U.S. And it was just a cultural show, a bunch of French guys talking about like literature or art oh my god know? i can't imagine like, that. like you can't imagine that <laughs> happening and i remember in dublin a few years ago when there was a similar thing where in there are countries where just like prime time evening they talk about culture and like the most kind of like 
boring setup, kind of academic and, you know, philosophy or whatever. So we've never had that. I think one of the things that I think American culture is exciting is because the mass media has been so kind of separate and, and artists have always carved uh, counterculture spaces for themselves. Now, maybe that's part of the problem, right? It's like, that kind of seems like a part of it. Now, maybe in this world where we even go, you know, we, we're all in the echo chambers, they're kind of getting, you know, more and more isolated. It's even harder for people to kind of flip through a magazine and suddenly see a picture that was not targeted to them. And now they don't know anything about art at all because it's never in their, like, it's not in the algorithm's interest to introduce yeah, random really cultural things. Yeah. But I also, I, mean, I think, like, your, your artistic development and not necessarily going through like a traditional MFA program mm. and working with music venues and doing cross-disciplinary things, being in film festivals. I mean, you, you've probably had a much larger audience than most visual artists will ever have. You didn't, get, you didn't immediately go into like a BFA, MFA program mm -hmm. into a network of people that are working with some fairly stable concepts, I would say, mm -hmm. at this point. You know, like the, we have people still making non-objective abstract paintings that are responding to questions from, you know, like the 40s and earlier. And they're for a very kind of specific audience. And, and it is like the siloing of it is kind of amazing. And how, like just, just trying to break out of that, there's a lot of, think like the art world would look at it and say it's sort of compromised. Like if you put art and music together, it's impure. It's, you know, there's, there's still a lot of... Um, value placed on just like arts autonomy and doing visual arts own thing. And it's amazing because then that really, you know, it's like if you want to deal with anything popular distributed media, people are already kind of like, Ugh, you know, within the fine arts world. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of that is kind of slowly being chipped away. I see it happening the opposite way at the same time. For, for every push there is to make it more open and democratic, there's like a counter movement of people who are like, let's slow it down. Uh -huh. Let's oh, really well, yeah, make yeah. it well, about well, the well, experience me... of yeah. this one thing, you know, <laughs> handmade, artisanal, you know? Let like, I, we're so fucked up, we don't that. even know where <laughs> it is anymore. Let me just push back on one thing, though, because I, I, I don't think that um, it's necessarily like more democratic Mm -hmm. uh, like what I'm what I'm talking about in terms of, like it's more open in terms of like, hey, yes, let's have like some music, some blah, 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 like some different mediums. And I guess and I'm just using democratic rest, like, as popular. And yeah. I, not, okay. it's not, yeah. you know, I don't mean to interchange them, right. but I think the optimistic sense that if you can make art available to a lot of people mm -hmm. that it, it appeals to a democratic sensibility, mm -hmm. something more egalitarian, right? As opposed to like elitist and closed, but the more egalitarian mm -hmm. or popular it becomes, we still have associations with kitsch, with, you know, cheapness, ease, you know, things that aren't challenging, experimental. And that like, if you're making a kind of esoteric work that like 10 people know about, then there's going to be some, you know, there's still a value system well, for we that. We <laughs> And proof of that was that show we saw at the whole. Remember that show? It was Red like... Naughty or something. Yeah, it was just all like minimalist, abstract paintings that I, I don't even know how they got at, at the whole, like of all the galleries that they would <laughs> land at. <laughs> Paying the bills, uh, you know, hitting, hitting a certain, uh, you know, a collector base that really just mm -hmm. wants, you know, a, a design that looks like modernist art in their home. But I, so I think there's like a couple of things mm -hmm. that are really interesting you bring up. Um, 
one thing that I think I didn't kind of talk a lot about is in terms of the grants and the funding, which we kind of before, is that I think I was under the impression, you know, 10 years ago when I started getting the grants, that it would translate to other recognition as well, that I wouldn't necessarily need to cultivate simultaneously the kind of art world that I was a part of more in the early 2000s through all these events, and I would could just... The, you know, getting the funding to produce something would then bring on other opportunities. But in fact, because on, it's almost like these two parallel trajectories and you have to, as an artist, like cultivate it like a bonsai tree, constantly being able to like maintain relationships and both are in one world because otherwise you would just be stuck in one place and no one's going to know your work. And so you have to always be aware of it and... Um, so wait, what are those two places again? Just so I understand. Uh, I there's uh, there's more than two, but the one that <laughs> <laughs> I would say there's like the fun like like my assumption. I don't want to generalize, but my assumption that was by getting grants and getting funded for my work, I will be able to have recognition, and it would kind of translate to um, the, let's not just specifically the gallery, but other institutions that are tied in. With the with the gallery worlds, I guess now at the time it wasn't as much. I think mm-hmm. now it's just so tightly connected. But in fact, I think it's very rare. I think there are lots of artists who make get grants and kind of work with the same type of institutions, maybe more educational and be like places in Europe, and don't have a recognition um, in the like local New York kind of market or like museum type of museum. I agree with that 100%. I mean, Jen Dalton and I talk about this quite often, that there are these various areas that artists can have success, right? One might be sales at a commercial gallery. Another area might be grants. Another area might be um, press, certain kinds of press. What's the critical reception? Uh, Some level of popularity. And now we have new categories. Like, are you popular on Instagram? Do you have a (laughs) lot of social media following? How do you monetize that? And that can translate to a drip thing. Someone who's like that maybe would be a drip. Right. Yeah, so we have Bakun, for example, might but, be. A... And it can become very easy to um, even philosophically structure a practice where you're like, I'm only going to be interested in this one area because I'm, uh, I only want to pursue grants because I don't want to have to um, participate in a commercial market, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know. And it can become very difficult to, yeah, as you point out, to It's very hard to, to cross work. over and to, to do both. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, maybe it's my fault to kind of want to do it all. And some people are just very happy with one thing. I'm kind of always like, oh, no, but I've... this can work here too. Like, why is painting, you know, I have so many, I love painting. I want to yeah, show painting. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And I mean, I think it's, it's part of it. There's a, a still a sense that like selling things can be problematic and so if you're trying to not participate in that market it can kind of lessen maybe exactly um, and some of the paradoxes or something, you know, it's a that kind you have of a branding do. thing. I hate to use that True. term, yes. but that's the brand yeah. you kind of brand it as. If you're a, a pure ecological artist, or artist. not a selling artist, yeah. and then depending on maybe where the gallery world is, you might be able to decide whether or not. You know, like for example, like if I talk to like a painter friend who might have a show of a couple of years and sell out their show, right? But in the meantime, like you said, I have, I travel in all these places. People teach my videos in like their course that, you know, I have this other recognition and I'm not going to sell anything at all. So we're like in these kind of parallel worlds. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And he's like a very local kind of sustained, you know, sustaining his career. So um, that's uh, kind of one thing that I wanted to bring out in terms of this idea of mid-career. And and I guess the kind of t- to the, the bottom line is, sure, maybe I could take on uh, grant life to like a full extent and like 
become kind of a non-for-profit, get more grants. But at some point, I think the way the market is, the way the art world is right now, if you do not dip your toes in this mainstream commercial, whatever you want to call it, I don't want to call it commercial because I know it's so commercial, art world, then your career would, would, it would be harder for you to achieve bigger goals. Yeah. Just kind of, let's, let's not right. say, I don't want to say like, make tons of money and be super but like just achieve more ambitious goals like that's kind of the goal depending on the kinds of work you make i mean there's certain there is work that i make that i would never apply for a grant for Mm -hmm. knowing that there's a market for it or that somebody might be willing to buy it because it's they like the way it's drawn or they like the content of the piece but i would never apply for a grant for it whereas you know social practice based works or month to month with jen we couldn't have done that there's no there was no commercial gallery for that kind right. of work. Yeah. And so it made sense to really work with a nonprofit and have to get funding for it. But it was also incredible. Like there was so much work that went into just finding money. And then it was a series of compromises that we had to make to just make the show happen. Yeah. But it was not the show that I think we would have done had there been like uh, a lot of grant money for it. And I think, as, sorry, uh, uh, maybe someone who, um, I think when I was young, just starting this, I was didn't totally know what I was doing. So a lot of it was just kind of gut and going with the opportunities. Like I wasn't super like calculating in like my career, like long term. Mm-hmm. So maybe someone who was more kind of a savvy young artist with like a good sense of business sort of like can like plan this advance I'm just going to talk about again my post experience one other thing I wanted to make in terms of like media and commercial galleries which I think is potentially interesting and really follow up on what you were talking about the artisanal thing is that I think in a in a, in a way um, super realistic uh, 3D animations have been a gateway of media into the gallery world so a lot of the like digital work that you would see, I think a lot of them incorporate these very like uh, 3D animations and you know kind of Jordan VR. Wilson. exactly yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that is also kind of connected to uh, certain art world preferences mm-hmm. that seem to exist right now. Like there's a there's a real interest in representation that a couple years ago was not maybe quite as large. Oh, during the height of zombie formalism? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have fire Same. extinguisher. I have canvas. <laughs> Spray. Shh. <laughs> So it's been replaced by um, some of this like super realistic, super, like, realistic yeah. Yeah, you no, know, I rendering. It, I think they're related. I think in some way, again, going back to like media, like that's something that people can understand that there is skill in. You know, oh, we've seen it in a movie, CGI. You know, it's again like Hollywood. Well, there's yeah. a, the, the thing into... with the the super rendered stuff. It's not so much about skill for me. Again, it's like this idea of what can somebody make that most people can't get access to? Like a Jordan mm-hmm. Wolfson animatronic robot yeah, costs yeah, yeah. a shit ton of money right. to make. Mm-hmm. And so for certain collectors, it's like, that's like a really expensive toy that like, you know, and that's one right. end of it. On the other end, I mean, like Chris Martin's still out there making, you know, 10 foot paintings with like, look like wheat pasted photocopies. I mean... The D skilled still has as much value. It's just you know. No, but you well, said, you but said not. It well. But I would say in the tech world that doesn't necessarily translate yeah, because the glitch no, stuff. Well, the I think the glitch. It I know it's sort of past, but it's still. I think very much alive is like a counterpoint. Yeah. Well. 
Yes, but it's not where I'm going with, with this particular <laughs> point, which is it, um, last year in North Carolina, I, I ran this kind of crit group and we went to, um, I can't remember what museum, but we watched this this piece that was like a 3D rendered sort of mini narrative that seemed to be connected to weather patterns in Paris, depending on on what the weather was like in Paris, it would sort of affect the uh, how this particular landscape was rendered. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there was a game designer who took the class, and she looked at the rendering and and the execution of the piece, and she was just like, well, you know, because this is art, do I have to just accept that it's worse than what I would want, like what I, what I would make myself with a team of, of animators? And uh, I that's, just... <laughs> that's like a whole other subject that's really interesting. I don't know if we can even get to. I don't even know how to... Yes, but the whole... like So there's a whole evolution. Like the media art is like the data, data-based art, right? They're like data visualization. Mm-hmm. Yes. All the visualization stuff. And, and, you know, we've done some work also with like art and science, for example, because that's sort of a way that you can, again, get funding and mm-hmm. work. We worked at a science gallery in Dublin where people would lining up for an exhibitions, like the whole of Dublin would come to this museum of science, right? Like around the block. And that's a whole other section of how do you how do you do that working with scientists artists working in scientists is such an interesting very complicated like known problem with the artists um really want to work intellectually and kind of um make something conceptual and meta and the artists or other people are like oh it's just not pretty enough can you make something more beautiful and artists want to work with it not just visually you know a lot of the time right. that's kind of the conflict they want to not play scientists but they want to work like a scientist researching uh, yeah Martha not Rossler's just kind designers, of not as designers. if what if I were a scientist yeah. what would I do with this information and data really taking on that and that's like a really problematic very few people I think are successful in managing that there's the well, they're not, in Australia they're not <laughs> yeah. yeah no but even a partnership with a scientist yeah. You know, those are often very complicated, and then you get responses like that. So, you know, there is a kind of idea, like, if you say it's art, you get a pass it a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I mean, there's, there, you know, this, this idea that art, one of its things it's good at is, like, defunctionalizing something. And so if you're working in a field where your whole, you have goals, you want to solve something, you're, like, trying to build or make something happen, and along comes an artist who's like, how do I make something that is, like, a, an aesthetic function first? The lamp doesn't have to turn on. I guess what you were talking about, it seems to me like, in one hand, we have this expansion of what art is, artists working with in science, you know, science or bio art, you know, conceptual performances, all these different things. And at the same time, there's this, like, feels to me that the... Art institutions, the most powerful art institutions in, in America are closing in and are retracting and are almost like showing more, becoming more and more conservative. I don't know if it's as a response or what it is, but there's all these other things happening, but they're not getting enough. They're almost getting less and less spaces. That's the kind of nut of this yeah. to me is yeah. that I think that this is in theory or not in theory, in practice, based on what I've seen, I've actually seen a lot of like really exciting work. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on, but it's not being supported. And I think it's really hard to find. I see it whenever I travel. And I think that that also kind of ties into like, well, I I guess like people's interest in it, right? Because like people read, they're used to reading about like 
people who make a lot of money and sell a lot of stuff. And I think there's a lot of sort of claims that people within our our community are like interested in good art that happens everywhere. But like, how do you get somebody to read about something that happens in like Portland or, you know, that happens in these like smaller cities that are like really, I think, yeah, and that, that, that's also part of the issue is that reading about a really interesting work is very different than experiencing the work. Yes, that's true, you too. Know? Yeah. And if and I mean, and you're pointing out a problem that we don't even necessarily get the good writing about, like a good well, secondary the interpretation. The reporting to get people to, con- to well, know about it. Well, and you know? most of our reporting ha- has to do with the market itself mm-hmm. and what's selling or mm-hmm. controversy. Mm-hmm. The Dana Schutz thing mm-hmm. piercing the civilian bubble. Controversy. People have but no idea. People have no idea. I just think that this is like That's such a, a it. yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. such an exciting time in art yeah. in this like weird way yeah. and like also like simultaneously crushingly depressing. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the thing. I think you know when I was talking to uh, to my friend about, about about why does she not know? But I was said the artists are dealing with everything that you guys care about with the economy, with you know, like all these issues with you know nature, with you know psychology, whatever it is that you care about. There's an artist there working with these issues. You would love to see their work and hear about it. I, I have this image, I have like two images in my head right now. One is of a really fascinating artist, maybe even paired up with a scientist, doing something really cool with the environment, and that there's not the right venue for it, or if there is, it's happening at a residency somewhere where there's no yes. audience. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. it'll yes. never yes. be yes. delivered to and the these world. Are exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then yeah. on the other side of yeah. it, you have freeze tent, this giant tent with lots of art that might have an, a representation of an environmental issue or a political issue, but it is not for the general population as well. It's for very wealthy collectors. There's a whole army of press, you know, that go and write about like what sold, what didn't sell. And that those two worlds, I mean, like we've been sort of talking around it, like you have to maybe Mm -hmm. have one foot in both. Mm -hmm. And that if you actually can sell to the rich person, you might get enough money to take your interesting residency project and bring it to the public. But the public may not care right now. This came up um, in the course that I was teaching. I was reading a critical art ensemble, like wrote uh, an essay in 2001. One of the things they were talking about was sort of how ineffectual it was to deal with media as a as a kind of agent of change and like it's much better to try and work directly with policy but one of the things that they talked about was the civil unrest and civil disobedience and how like in the civil war like it, it felt very much like the south was still kind of fighting the civil war because even though they had they had lost it their ideology fundamentally hadn't changed And so you still had these, something that was like brought together, but there was no, people hadn't changed their way of thinking. And I guess like this is... They still haven't. Yeah, they still haven't. Yeah. (laughs) We're going backwards in time. Yeah. And I mean, I guess this is sort of, you know, applying this to how do we get people to like, to start thinking about interesting... And I think Tali, your practice brings it up, is that there's a change that has to happen within artists. Yes. And it's about that possibility because I do think there's a sense that artists are like if I build it people will come if they were sufficiently educated or interested enough Mm -hmm. but if you start thinking differently about who your audience might be or the kinds of work that you can make for public that you might be meeting them a little bit more halfway yes you know I mean I can imagine people go to Burning Man and watching like large-scale installations go up and then get set on flames are like look at that wonderful art 
oh, I had yeah. a real cultural experience. And that's part of my bias being like, oh, that seems like hell. But we have these other models that are both popular, that have big public audiences, but yeah. there is something that either seems compromised or... It's really important to recognize your audience, you know, to re- recognize people who brought you here and, and take that with you, right? So, like, if I'm just like, oh, you know, fuck the noise scene, I'm going to now make, like, paintings, right? Because that's the way I can make money. No, I'm super, like, really recognizing where I come from and because I think we've always been semi-organizers as well as artists which we can't you kind of have to be when you work in the DIY scene I'm really aware of that as well you know Mm -hmm. so but that's not for every artist that problem of audience is one that really does impact a lot of artists and you know artists who are successful in the market and they don't have to ask themselves that question it's like it's working for them something that we've been talking about uh, over the course of the podcast and I think we're all sort of contending with is that there's going to there's a sort of generation of artists who are emerging but there is not necessarily the places to become established Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and whether it's dealers who run a gallery for 10 years and instead of reaching a sort of stable point where they can grow old and become the next like chime and read they're not necessarily lasting long enough to even do that we may have to change as artists or as an art world out of desperation in some way and and speaking of change in the art world chime and read went out of business recently well they're changing their business model they're they're shifting into a private practice but i have to say so so going back to this idea of like organize where you're from and like and i know something we've talked about is and maybe there's so many um connections to politics right is going local Right. Like we've been for so long thinking like big politics and now we're we're thinking again, oh, wait a minute, I have a Congress person, you know, I got to do all these things. And I think maybe investing in our local community in terms of art as well. No, that's something I'm I'm trying. This is another thing we've talked a lot about is gentrification. Mm -hmm. And for all the sort of wonderful DIY stuff that can happen, it can also get you into like silent barn territory, Mm -hmm. which is a great space. But they also just ceded the space to a local community group, hoping Mm -hmm. that they would be able to keep paying the rent there. There's a real tension between what counts as local in the United States. And, you know, I moved here from somewhere else. Many of the artists I know sort of parachute army that kind of like drops into a place and then says we're a community in an existing community and this tension plays out like when I think about all of the manifestas and documentas and biennials that are happening around the world there's a certain level of the art world that is just not local at all mm-hmm. it is like purely a global yes. yeah Thing. It's a global proposition, and squaring that with the local is a real—that's a real challenge. Well, especially when you live in a place like New York, which is such a ca- international yeah. capital. This is actually something I think a lot about right now, and we're going to start launching exhibitions at our house because part of what I'm because I, I meet people who live in Long I'm, Island now. You live in Long Island, Island Long okay? Island, out, out, far away, like an hour and a half away. With civilians, so, so real civilians. <laughs> I hang out with civilians all the time. Well, you know, so I know I, I meet these other parents who are international a lot of them are europeans international highly educated people know nothing about art all of them with money that can afford work from between a couple hundred dollars to thousands of dollars so all of them can afford art none of them consumes art in on any level right so i can have i'm like well i'm gonna try to bring them into my home and invite an artist to do a little installation have a few works and make it like a social, comfortable place where they can hear someone talking about their work, maybe have a dialogue with an academic to kind of talk about other topics. 
And I'm going to try that. I'll report back with you. Yeah, that would be wonderful. That sounds I mean, great. I think we should probably bring the conversation to a close. I was curious if there were other models or things that you think you can do as you kind of cope with the change of the granting landscape. And I think that's one sort of awesome idea. I'm also just a little wary of all artists moving into their own permanent residency somewhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, like <laughs> yeah, what you've yeah, talked yeah, about yeah. is you're bringing people in yeah. the, from the community and trying to develop a new audience, which I think is sort of fantastic. And I hope if people are moving upstate that they will be able to find audiences if they're moving out of the city into the suburbs and well, rural areas. It is an amazing, I mean, there's a whole, I think it's like the old Brooklyn is now in oh, the yeah. state of New York. So that's spread out all yeah. over the yeah, Delaware River out. and Hudson yeah. Valley. Uh, yeah. There's a kind of mass exodus. I just hope it doesn't end up. But the, the thing is that I, and again, like maybe like going back to this, like what does this mid-career mean, right? I think it means that you, your dedication is to your work. You've overcome certain obstacles. you got to maintain that support and you got to now focus on your work and do the best work you can. Almost like you don't have to like prove, you know, for the first time. But you have to, this is, this is how I'm looking at it right now. I am now. What do I really, really want to do? How do I give everything I got into what I'm making, right? This is like the time to do it. Uh, it doesn't have to be like super ambitious. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be whatever. But what is like the best you can do? And more like looking at models of artists who I really respect, who have done it and have gone, you know, they're like, celebrity whatever status later in their career right and specifically to me there's like a lot of media artists like film and musicians who have done it and i think maybe that's what it is to sustain that that career yeah. you know, place i yeah. love the way you talk about it because the way that you talk about it it sounds almost freeing it's like okay i'm done with the 20s and 30s like i love aging you know (laughs) like i am now gonna put away like a certain set of anxieties Um, very consciously very consciously because you could because i can freak myself right i like i can worry that um you know, not 20. I also have, I'm a, I have three kids. I can't, I've never really been able to like go out all the time. Um, so I can, I can worry and for whatever, or I can like see the things I have that I've worked hard for yes. and just go for it. Before you came here today, I was thinking about this is the kind of period that Mira Shore talks about in on failure mm-hmm. and anonymity is that the spotlight will leave you you know, young emerging artist, you will no longer uh, be written about. And but it's a time where you can actually fail and change and experiment and do interesting and new things. And it may go on for 10 years or 20 years. And I think it can be really productive if you're able to get past like the social anxieties of (laughs) being out of like a kind of spotlight. But it does point to the fact the art world loves two things. It loves young emerging artists loves the stories we have something new for everyone and then it loves later the, like, like the 97 year old latina like painter right. oh, yes. in la is like yes. and i love carolina's you know storytelling an interview with her about it but there's not the equivalent story of i think that was a really, yeah that was a really good um point you're making about what the art world loves yeah it i mean but a disco- you know a rediscovery a disco- a yeah it story. loves the discovery and the rediscovery yeah. but it what, what what we don't necessarily have is the kind of um story of just like working in the middle quietly and i don't know if there is a good story for that or if well we there even may not be a good story but i mm-hmm. do feel like it exists in this room because i do think that like you guys both are doing like super exciting work and i got really excited to just this is so cheesy but i actually get excited coming here because your work is so interesting right now william like i'm like you know it's really kind of exciting to 
to hear about these things. So, so and I, it is, yeah, it's, it's some, you know, every once in a while you have to kind of go back and see why am I doing this, even, yeah. you know, cause it can be so grueling, um, and not, not having to chase whatever the current trend is, you know? So, yeah, completely agree with that. And uh, any final thoughts on grants or granting? I've been on some panels for grants, so that's like a, always an interesting thing. And I do want to give a shout out to Frank and Furnace because it's oh, yeah. one of the most interesting panels to I've gotten an award from them, panel to be in because um, Martha Wilson is just like the truest of like avant garde spirit that's still uh, going on. And you know, she uh, I've never been in a panel like that where you go into the panel, she gives you a huge binder with every single proposal that she got. So there's no, you know, no one gets selected. If they didn't fill everything out, it doesn't matter. If they didn't have work samples, it doesn't matter. You get them all and you give them all equal amount of attention and respect. And when we had to make the selection, um, a couple of the works, she really pushed us and she said, trust the artists. Trust the artists because it doesn't always have to follow Mm. the rules that we set. Sometimes you just have to give them that support and opportunity and, and, you know, give them that trust and they can, uh, that's a kind of, I I feel like that's a kind of inner strength and courage to be able to say that too. like trust that they can do, can do what they say. Yes. We're so caught up often with the rules of the game. Yeah. Because the art is such a, you know, ever changing thing that, um, we forget to. How many grants do you apply for annually? Just because I think for, for a lot of listeners, they might not, and especially I mean, younger artists, yeah. they apply to a lot of things and they get rejected and they're like, well, it's I'll never more get a like, so, so, you know, I probably apply a lot less now because mm-hmm. as I said, there's some that I cannot apply to anymore, but I can tell you that I've applied to several grants that I like, or residencies seven times, mm-hmm. you know, so it's more about persisting than how many you apply for. I, I never pay for any application except for if I get, like, an invitation to, like, you know, something that I know I'm going to get. But, um, so that always kind of changes things, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't I don't like paying for... Uh, yeah, I think it's just a good rule yeah. of thumb to yeah. avoid pay-to-play yeah. models where really you can. I don't pay-to-play, exactly. Yeah, I would say it changes. So I guess that what I usually tend to do is focus on one or two projects that I want to do like something I've been kind of working the next step in what I want to do and then the secret was so I think a lot of artists are afraid or have had bad experience writing it's not always something we do well you know various levels there's a difference between writing um, your personal statement and writing an application that is supposed to be much um, I guess everyone's a little different but has a more clear straightforward way of explaining what you're going to do and why you're doing what you're doing it's very different than talking about your artistic practice so my little secret is that Kyle and I are very different and have different skills and the way we work is often I would draft the proposal with my bad flawed grammar and almost like steam of consciousness ideas of what I want to do what I want to do it try to edit it as much as I can but then Kyle takes it and makes it into a more academic kind of proper English readable thing. And then I look at it again, if it's too much, kind of cut it, you know, like adjust it. So we start with just like putting a lot of words and then slowly condensing it. There's always a a character limit, a word limit, and you want to make it kind of tight. Uh, And this back and forth is really helpful. I would say just like if you have an idea in technology and you can't do everything and you always reach out to someone who can because collaborations are so key. 
I think there are lots of people who can who can read your text and help you edit it. I sometimes read other artists' um, applications. People send me things to take a look at it. Just having that like extra set of eyes before you submit is a great thing to do. Everybody has their own different uh, writing skills. Let's just say no skills. You know, I can write a certain way, but not always the right way for. Um, certain applications so finding uh, a collaborator mm -hmm. uh, can just make things easier and that was my big secret it wasn't that exciting <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely helpful i mean you just know a helpful tip yeah if you're if your anxiety is involved writing find someone who can help you get over that or <laughs> planning <laughs> yeah don't just whip it you know that's the thing yeah. it's you know it does take practice and planning and Absolutely. And it's going to get read by lots of people who are willing to award you money. So I don't think you should be shy sharing that with a critical reader. I think the other thing I that at least I've learned from uh, grant writing is that once you do a certain amount of it, you learn that a lot of it can be recycled. So once you really kind of get into it, you're not reinventing the wheel each time you write a grant. And that is a time saver, a huge time saver, which is really necessary because uh, writing these things is just not, not that quick. Which is a big advantage of doing uh, one project with multiple actually resources. A lot of it is that, is the time saving of using the same grant and just kind of patch it up in a different way every time. It's not just a funding. It's a good use of your time. I, I would say that this is something that I think in the like film industry, people who are doing independent cinema, experimental films, they do a lot of that. There's a lot. They have kind of their own way of like writing and patching things up and applying for festivals. It's a whole other thing that they, they do a lot of as well. So huh. learning from other art forms is kind of a good thing or genre. All right. Well, I think that kind of like wraps up what we were going to talk about. Tali, thanks so much for coming out. It was really great to talk to you. Thanks for having yeah. me. <laughs> it was great. Thank you. Next time uh, on Explain Me, we are going to have a very uh, interesting discussion on New York 2140. Kim Stanley Robinson's science fiction look at New York partially submerged <laughs> with all kinds of art references so we're gonna and uh, indexes and all the rest so we're really gonna dig into that we've got some exciting guests lined up can't wait to to do it great until then